You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fawcett to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Faye, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go. You can stand and shout Eureka, do whatever you like. You'll never forget the moment when lightning strikes. Hi, this is Gerald Brenner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about that wondrous, heart-thumping, tingly, mic-drop moment when you knew you had to be an artist. My guest today is James Sampleiner. Let me just tell you, there are musicians, composers, arrangers, orchestrators in the world. And then there's James Sampleiner. He is a pianist, composer, arranger, orchestrator, conductor, music producer, percussionist, music copyist. He is very beloved in the New York theater community. And this is just a sampling of some of the artists James has worked with. He's worked with Audra McDonald, Billy Porter, Leslie Owen Jr., Patina Miller, Chuck Cooper, Shoshana Bean, Annalie Ashford, Norm Lewis, Sarah Merez, Lilius White, Mandy Gonzalez, Rob McClure, Adrian Lennox, Eden Espinosa, James Naughton, Karen Ziembra, Karen Ziemba, Deborah Monk, Titus Burgess, Tracy Tobbs, Will Swenson, B.B. Newworth, Lori Beachman, Jason Robert Brown, Susan Stroman, Hal Prince, and on and on and on. Again, that's just a sampling. Some of his theater credits include Never Gonna Dance, Brooklyn the Musical, The Wedding Singer, Legally Blonde, Honeymoon in Vegas, Prince of Broadway, Songs for a New World. Most recently, he co-produced, arranged, music directed the brand new album Along the Way with Bobby Conte Thornton. Shoshana Bean said about James, he loves, lives, and breathes music the same way that I do. He loves taking tunes and reimagining them, and he's wonderful at it. When James shows up to the gig, he commits himself fully. And above be a professional and a skilled player, he shows up with his whole heart. So welcome, James. Uh, that's a lovely introduction. Thanks, Gerald. You're welcome. I hope it represents who you are. I know very much so. It's, there's there's lots more to say, and and of course you can add to the many names. I know I just mentioned a few names, but um, first of all, tell me your light. Uh, let's talk about your lightning strikes moment when yeah. you knew you had to be an artist. 
it, it really wasn't a lightning strikes moment. It was kind of from, from birth. I was always a, a musician. Um, I started playing music when I was, you know, I was plunking notes out when I was probably about two or three. And I started playing when I was three and a half. So, you know, it, it, this, this wasn't really a lightning strikes moment in terms of what I was going to do. Uh, it's kind of always been in the cards. I've always been fascinated with music. And, uh, and one of the reasons I think Alex Lacamoire and I are so tight as friends and colleagues is because we both had the same experience of looking at a speaker when we were toddlers and wondering, how does that work? Uh, uh, we both have the same story and it's, and it's interesting that we, we both came out the way that, that, you know, doing what we're doing because, um, it's been a fascination my whole life. I'm still fascinated with it. And, uh, I have a huge birthday coming up on Friday and, uh, a milestone of sorts. And so it's kind of remarkable that I've spent the last half century, uh, you know, doing what I love to do. So there really hasn't been an exact moment when I say that lightning strikes for that there, you know, for each project, there are lightning strikes moments and that could take years, but you know, um, in terms of the actual job, this has always been the thing. There's really been nothing else. So I'm very pleased and incredibly humbled to know that that's always been the case. Well, what was it? Can you talk about, I know most people have several moments in their life that led them on this path. But what was it about the piano that got you beyond plunking to the next step? Because did you don't come from a family of musicians, or do you? No, I don't. Um, in fact, nobody really kind of took to it the way I did. Uh, my sister and brother both took lessons, but they, it didn't really stick with them. And my parents, my father you know, played clarinet in the Columbia marching band at Columbia university uptown. But, but I, and my mother really didn't play anything. She just liked to listen to music. Everybody liked to listen to music. That was the big kind of musical thread in my house. Um, I think that it was just the kind of thing that I, every time I heard my finger click on a key and it would make a sound that was melodious. And the more keys you press, the more sounds you made. And, I guess that seemed to, uh, you know, like things that were appealing to me. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So how did you get from plunking to actually playing? Did you take lessons or how did yeah. that happen? And how, yeah. So I was... Um, immediately brought to a Montessori uh, nursery school 
which focused on, you know, it, more of the creative side of being a toddler and kind of feeding that while teaching basic skills of math and some other stuff. Um, and so I was at the Whitby School in Greenwich. And, um, and from there, the teacher noticed an aptitude for music because I would constantly, instead of going outside and playing recess, I would stay inside during recess time and, and play a, a record album of Bernstein conducting Stravinsky. <laughs> that, was, that was my activity. Um, so much so that my mother had to be called in because the, the headmaster wanted her to see what was going on. And my mother thought I was in trouble. And it was quite the opposite. She just couldn't believe that I was standing in this room as a three-year-old conducting the air to this record. She was very, you know, she wanted my mother to see that. So from there, my mother instantly put me in uh, Jacques Delcroix's class, which uh, his his method is called Eurythmics, and it's basically to teach toddlers how to incorporate rhythm and dance into your daily life so that you become kind of one with rhythm and one with music, and so they put me in that. And then when I was uh, three and a half, four, um, that's when I started studying privately at the Westchester Conservatory of Music in White Plains, New York, and uh, was taught the Suzuki method, which is a Japanese memorization method. And then you learn by listening, and then you read the notes after you've learned by listening. So it kind of works in reverse. And that's how I learned oh. how to play. And from there, I studied privately classically, um, and then a private jazz teacher. And then I headed off to Indiana University uh, School of Music in Bloomington, Indiana, after high school. And was there a time, though, that you said, okay, I'm going to make this my living, that it's not just going to be me playing, but it's going to it's gonna be part of my life, or that also you knew? That I knew from the word go. There was, there was just no other choice in my head. <laughs> I, knew I, was, I knew I was good at it. I knew I didn't, I was not good at sports. I knew that I had a, a, an aptitude for music, and I knew that I didn't want to really kind of study uh, history for the rest of my life or any kind of, um, any kind of liberal arts topics. I knew that I, I was, uh, uh, an avid reader, but I didn't really love to, to dive into research or the sciences or anything like that. This was always what it was going to be. And everybody that's known me since I was a kid has always known that too. Teachers who still come to my gigs, uh, you know, uh, friends of mine from high school that are still in touch and have always followed me. Um, you know, so I don't think it was really a surprise to anybody that this was yeah. going to be it, you know? And you have a beautiful story about Williamstown, right? About right. working at William. Do you want to share that story? Sure. In your career, right? It's, it's, it's the, uh, it's, that's the turning point. The, okay. the, if there's ever a lightning strike in terms of what really kind of hit and, and made my whole life pivot and change to something where I, where it took me to a career move. It was getting the job at Williamstown where I was the music director for their late night cabaret series for seven years. Uh, and during that time became the music director of the festival under Michael Ritchie and supervised all the music for the productions or music directed shows myself um, on their main stage. And so it was a, it was a very important moment because I really didn't understand in terms of the, the hierarchy of Summerstock, especially, but in terms of the hierarchy of the New York theater world, I didn't really understand how important Williamstown was. 
and and is and um, it it was the moment that I saw the first play there, which I forget the name of it, but the people involved with it, John Robin Bates wrote it. Uh, Cherry Jones was in it with Carol Shelley and John Hickok. Uh, not um, and um, uh, uh, oh God, there, there were so many good. Uh, There's so many great actors. Oh, John Benjamin Hickey was yeah. in it, and uh, uh, there's so many good people in it. And I thought, this is crazy. Why am I even here? I I, I don't belong with Cherry Jones and John Benjamin Hickey and Carol Shelley. Like, what am I? doing here but it was because michael ritchie and jenny gersten who were the producer and associate producer um basically looked at what i was trying to do up there and they thought that i had a place and deserved to be there and through basically the social element of williamstown uh i met basically all the people that that i have come up with and that have changed the theater game in so many ways and i could we could spend the rest of the hour going through the different people that walk through the gates with me. But the couple that I can mention off the top of my head are Charlie Day, who is an incredible actor, uh, writer, producer in Hollywood. Um, he has a show that's been on FX for 15 years, which seems absolutely incredible yeah. called it's sunny. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. And he and I started the same year at Williamstown and we have been friends ever since. Um, you know, uh, Dave Corns, the brilliant set designer uh, of Hamilton and Beetlejuice and so many, so many other things. He started out at Williamstown basically, I think, the same year or the year after I did. And we came up together. Charlie Altman was my associate music director, and I picked him to be my associate from the very beginning, uh, 22, 23 years ago. So there are so many examples of people that walk through the doors as, quote unquote, children. Yep. who started their career in the theater by being young and hungry and completely green at Williamstown. But we were around people that were legendary. I mean, I got to sit in a rehearsal room and watch a rehearsal of an Arthur Miller play with Arthur Miller in the room. Um, so, you, you know, the, the experiences of being around those types of people make yeah. you look at the business in a completely different way. And it's very much a family uh, I always talk to, especially if I see the people that were there during my time, I always talk about the fact that I could see the W emblazoned on the forehead from a mile away. It's a very <laughs> exclusive club, is yeah. what I meant to say, yeah. No, I, I get it. The cool, yeah. you, and when they talk about surrounding yourself and coming up with extraordinary people and collaborations, one of my favorite stories also is one of your first New York theater gigs was as a keyboardist for the show Radiant Baby at the Public Theater. And you met this actor named Billy well, Hooter. That's and, correct, yes. And you've been working together, collaborating ever since. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? I love uh, that. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's, I think he, he and I both say the same thing, although he says it more than I do, which is that it's the longest relationship either one of us has ever really been in. Um, <laughs> you know, and I, I love his husband, Adam. We're very close and, and I love him, but it's true. I, I, you know, the only longer relationship that Billy's had is his family and his agent or his manager, Bill Butler. Um, uh, it's a very special connection that we have and it's a very interesting uh story in terms of you know two souls that are so disparate in their 
backgrounds coming together to create art. And, uh, you know, Billy grew up in Pittsburgh and in uh, Squirrel Hill, which is much more of a ghetto community. I grew up in Westchester County. uh, And so, and Jewish and and Billy was uh, uh, part of the black church in, in Pittsburgh. And I just happened to be playing Radiant Baby. And it was a show that was based around funk and soul music which I had started to grow to really have an appreciation and an aptitude for. And Billy saw something in the way that I was attacking the music, literally, like just playing the keys without abandon, very much like what Shoshana was talking about, where I just gave everything to it, you know, and he saw that from far away. And eventually he didn't come up to me the first day. It took a couple of weeks for us both to talk to each other because for me, it was like, I'm in the room with the great Billy Porter. And for him, he didn't know who I was. So when he finally kind of wanted to get to know me, it took all of about four seconds for us to talk and really kind of bond. And the next thing I know, uh, we were in um, previews at the public and he yelled for me. He was like, Sam Pleader, get in here. And I was like, okay. And I was like summoned to the boys dressing room. And he's like, we're doing a concert. And I was like, okay. And like, that's the thing is that I've just grown to understand that Billy does not like to ask me if I'm free for something. It's just, we're doing it together. Like, that's the thing that I love about him is that it's, he has an idea and he knows that we're in the situation together, you know, when it's appropriate for us to be in the situation together, like the episode of Pose that we did together. And it's like, you know, there's no, there's no asking there's just how do we make this work? When are you? When can we get together? When can we talk about it? When can we, you know, make it happen? And um, it's been like that. We've made, oh, I don't know. I, I, I would if I had to guess, we've done about five pieces of theater together. Um, we've done three albums. We've done an episode of Pose. There's a lot more coming once the world comes back. So I can say that, but I can't say what. Um, you know, you've toured the world. Yeah, we've toured the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've 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 gone all over the place. Uh, I've been in Asia with him. I've been in Europe with him. Um, and around the country. So you know, it's it's been a a a long time, and and we really have been each other's support mechanisms in so many ways artistically. Um, you know, there was a time where nobody wanted to hire him, and everybody kind of. Mm -hmm you know, was not really paying attention to the stuff either he was doing or we were doing or, you know, like they were paying attention, but it was fleeting. It was in the moment. You know what I mean? It was um, people saw the stuff that we were doing and they loved it, but then it was kind of like left by the wayside a little bit. So it wasn't until Billy hit the uh, Angels in America revival that Michael Greif directed off Broadway that all of this really started to take shape. And, um, you know, uh, it's been a, it's been a crazy ride. 18 years. 18 years. How is this, if this is too hard to put into words, how, how has he changed since all this has happened? You know, this incredible, you know, that the world has caught on. Yeah, no, nothing's changed. No, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the point is that, neither he nor the art he makes nor the statements that he makes nor the passion that he uh, displays for anything, be it social awareness or fashion or theater or the arts or, you know, education 
None of that has changed. And I think that there's a, a valuable lesson to be learned because, you know, the fact that he is, uh, you know, my age, 50, and, and is about to, you know, hit 51 very soon and is the biggest name on everybody's lips right now, you know, in terms of not right now, but I mean, right now in the entertainment world, and nothing's changed. Yeah. You know, there's really literally nothing different about the man yeah. other than he has, you know, a better wardrobe, a husband <laughs> uh, who I adore and, you know, and family who has uh, uh, always you know, been by his side. And we have also over the years have worked with people who were up and coming as well to give back, you know, to make sure that they had uh, some work to do when nobody was hiring them. And we created stuff for them. And now their household names, you know. Uh, people like Leslie Odom and um, Bettina Miller yeah. and uh, uh, Josh Henry, you know, did some right. stuff for us. The R&B singer Lettucey used to sing Once Lettucey. in a While for us. Um, you know, it's just like there are so many different places where we have worked with people that, that they have touched my lives to be my life, to be honest. I mean, um, I've learned so much from the artists that, that we have worked with. Uh, and I would think and hope that, that they learn from us as well. So it's kind of that two-way thing, and that's what we have always preached, is to try and give back, but also to explore with people who are uh, new and have different insights, And that's but that's been our whole aesthetic since we've met. So nothing's changed. That's so beautiful. I, I still can't believe I was in the room when it happened, the extraordinary... Jason Robert Brown, Stephen Sondheim concert. Oh, uh, yeah. That Can you talk about that? That <laughs> town hall that was so magnificent on so many levels, but mm-hmm. can you give us an insider's glimpse of how it how it came together? And for people who don't know what I'm talking about, it, can you, uh, for people who don't know this concert, can you talk about it? Yeah. Um, well, Jason... Uh, has this residency at a club called subculture on Bleecker street that he's been doing for the last, Oh, I don't know, uh, five years or so, something like that. And every month he does a different show with different guest stars, but to showcase material that he's written to showcase cover tunes of things that he really wants to play or that are apropos for the moment. Um, and so it was the 50th, uh, celebration of his 50th concert. And he thought, well, I mean, why don't I just ask Steve? And he's known Steve for a long, long time. I've only known Steve for, uh, let's see, we did our, Billy and I did our show in 2006, I think. So something like 14 years, 13 years. And so, um, but, but, but Jason's known him a lot longer. And, uh, and this is so, even some time for people who, Oh yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Sondheim. Okay. Uh, so Jason's known Mr. Sondheim for a really long time. Um, and so he asked. He was like, I'm just going to ask Steve. And miraculously, he said yes. And so that was the genesis of it. And then about two weeks later, it was like, oh, boy, I got to make this. <laughs> I got to make it work. So, uh, you know, Jason put his nose to the ground and he asked a whole bunch of people, including Rob McClure and Katrina Lank and show and 
um, Sushana Bean, and and uh, and then asked a lot of the musicians that play with him, myself included, to be an orchestra for the evening. Um, and so he sent me some of the charts, maybe like a couple days ahead of time. But we basically had a day to rehearse it. Uh, not even. We probably had like six hours at Carol Music, and then. Oh, no, that one, I, I guess that one we rehearsed on stage that day, like before the concert. I don't think we even had, no, we didn't have an off-site rehearsal for that. We just showed up at, at Town Hall, rehearsed it that day with everybody, and then we did it that night. Um, and then, of course, my favorite part was that Lin-Manuel was the surprise, surprise guest of the whole evening. <laughs> and he was shooting the carnival scene of In the Heights uptown in Inwood. And we weren't sure that he was going to make it on time. And he literally walked in the door. We were supposed to open the doors at 7.30. He walked in the door of Town Hall at 7.10. I got a text saying, come on stage. And my one of my favorite moments that I'll just cherish forever, because, you know, Lynn, I've known for a little bit of time, too. But the fact that Lynn and Jason and I were the three people on stage rehearsing the uh, Franklin Shepard Inc., which was the opening number, um, and it was just the three of us. We just looked at each other. We're like, what are we even doing here? Like the three of us are such huge Steven Sondheim heads. Like we're just such Uber fans. And then we realized that we're on the same stage celebrating the man's 90th birthday at this concert, um, together and making this tribute together. And it was really, it was a remarkable, remarkable evening. Um, I hope that someday people will be able to, to see the result of it. But basically, the stage was I was playing second piano. Jason yeah. was playing first piano. And then I got up at some point and Mr. Sondheim took my place. And people, <laughs> lost, people lost their minds. And he played a couple things with Jason. And it was a stunning evening. Um, and I also got to play percussion in that concert, which was fun. And it was just a celebration of a, of a great legacy of a man, a composer, a mensch, a mentor. Yeah. Um, and it was a beautiful, beautiful evening. So I hope people get a chance to see it at some point. Yeah, it was one of those fly in the wall. Oh, my God. It really happened. And, and, and to hear Mr. Sondheim sing to say his words was so profoundly beautiful too. And yeah. then he raised money for an incredible cause. I mean, yes. so many uh, for Brady. Brady yes, Parker. that's correct. That's yeah. correct. Um, and oh, what a moment. Yes. I hope, I hope it gets to live on in some ways. I mean, for the public to see, can you talk about your new album with Bobby Conte Thornton? Sure. What would you like to know? Okay. Well, how did that? So it's uh, your new album with Bobby Conte Thornton is along the way. How did that come to be? Well, there was a birthday party I was at. This is such a New York story, actually. It's so funny. <laughs> it was a birthday party of a friend of ours, a mutual friend of ours that I was at. And she introduced the two of us and said, you two need to work together and then left us alone. And then I don't remember much after that. But the next day, I got a text from Bobby, and he was like, so when are we making this album? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I was like, what did we even talk about? So evidently, we must have talked about it over, I would say, one or two bourbons. And, <laughs> and we had talked about it, and he was super psyched that I was interested, and I was super psyched to meet him. I really didn't know much about him. I hadn't even seen Bronx Tale, so I didn't really know the scope of it, but I trusted this friend of mine to allow me into his sphere because she knows my talents and she knows his talents. And, uh, um, 
and it just was a match made in heaven. And I, I have never, uh, I've never felt such an akin to somebody who coming out of the gate as an artist that I have with Bobby. He literally just is the most giving and one of the most soaring voices that we have in the theater. And, uh, if I may, he actually started to, you know, they started previews of company. So he yes. got to, he got to do the role, uh, in this current gender swap revival and he's singing another hundred people, which is one of the harder songs in the show. And he was killing it. And so, you know, I've been talking with him pretty much at least once a week, if not longer. And he's just dying to come back because he loves singing that material. So that's how we connected. Um, and then in terms of the material, Bobby had developed a cabaret show. Uh, he was from the San Francisco area. And he was asked to do a show at the Fairmont, which is a legendary cabaret room uh, in the Fairmont Hotel. And he had done the show and had developed it over time, I would say over the last two, four years, something like that, and just wanted to finesse it and record it. And I took a look at the material, and it had been finessed further uh, past San Francisco um, by a few people. And I took a look at it and wanted to take another swipe at some of the material. And I think we swapped out about three or four things. And we made the record that has come out on Broadway Records uh, end of April. So I'm very pleased with the way it's come out. And uh, Bobby is just, I can't say enough about him. He's just one of the most glorious voices. And everybody that's heard the record has just been like, who is this kid? Yeah. You know, he's 27. I, it, that's yeah. the thing is that he has such a depth of understanding for yeah. somebody so young. And that's the most remarkable part about him is that he can attack a lyric and a phrase in a way that I don't see a lot of people that age um, have the aptitude to do. Uh, you know, I'm for, I was fortunate enough to work with Saleya Pfeiffer on the songs for New World Revival, and mm -hmm. she's got that too. She has that same kind of turn of phrase that Bobby does, but just with a different angle. And it's so special to see young people who really kind of get this and are bringing up the next generation of theater artists like this. It really, really makes me happy and, and gives all of us hope that this will continue. Yeah. And this is really storytelling, right? I mean, this album, right? Yes. I mean, telling his story mm -hmm. in a way, through song. Yeah. People, I, he yeah. likes to say that it's semi-autobiographical. Ah. Yeah. yeah. But there's it's, definitely a through line. There's definitely an arc to the album. It's yeah. meant to be, you know, we both are, we're very adamant about we could have singles on it, but the truth is, is that we really want to have the listener take the ride and be able to listen from the top to the bottom. Um, yeah. And that's the important mission of the record is that I really want the music industry in general too. And uh, for all of us to start making records again so that people have journeys to take. And it's yeah. not just like one hit single and you put the thing away. Like you really want to listen to the whole thing top to bottom. And that's what we were trying to make. And hopefully we were successful. Yeah, because there's nothing like going on a journey, you know, hitting play and then letting it come over you. I guess that's why I love Broadway cast albums so much, too. It's a really beautiful record. And I think that, you know, our, there are a couple of things that reference your lightning strikes topic inside the creation of certain songs. Like um, there's a, an arrangement on the record of how Deep is the Ocean, and a very obscure Irving Berlin song called Maybe It's Because I Love You Too Much. And 
the lightning strikes moment there was I was very down in the dumps in terms of how to get this arrangement to work because I just I couldn't figure it out and I'd hit I'd hit a brick wall uh, creatively and I just couldn't find my way in and Bobby came over and we had a little bourbon and we talked it through and we came up with this idea of making the front of it a string quartet and kind of very much in the the realm of the Brahms string quartets, where it's very romantic and lush, but simple and and uh, spare, um, and how to make this most beautiful love song, How Deep Is the Ocean, uh, really a heartfelt moment in the middle of the record. And that was probably my biggest lightning strike moment for the record. It was just, it was divine. And it came to me very quickly after that, but I needed that breakthrough. I needed that help with collaboration. And I think that it's not always... Art is not always a singular solo journey. Um, I think it really works the best when other people are allowed in and you kind of take in that energy and, and use that energy for your own creations. And uh, so I'm really grateful to Bobby to, um, for to working with me, A, <laughs> to saying yes, and, uh, and for giving me a chance to really help him um, uh, uh, realize a vision that's he that he's had for years years and i'm just so honored to work with him and know him and be a part of that that's so wonderful it sounds like you you helped your each other yeah i think of that song from flora the red menace it's a quiet thing mm. when you arrive at that moment of epiphany or how you arrive at that arrangement sometimes right. yeah it's like yeah that's exactly exactly yeah, yeah. Can you talk about, for people who might not real understand what you do, and I know you do so many things, but you know, when I remember talking to Rob McClure and he said, uh, he was, he said, oh, I've got this incredible music director. And he said, all credit goes to James. Can you, can you take people through what, People, the process of when you so an artist says, "Okay, let's do this concert or let's record this album." I know they're very two two very different things, but what you would do because yeah. I mean, you make things sound incredible. Oh, right? thanks. Thank you. <laughs> but can you? I know that probably seems like a very basic question, but I don't mm-hmm. know if people understand it. Yeah, I think I think that people, especially because there's been so much talk recently about like um, uh, what do you call it, like the Billie Eilish situation, where you can you, he, she and her brother, you know, made an entire record in their bedroom with Logic and put it out, and it's like she won all these Grammys for it. So it can be that, but when you're talking about more traditional recording, it isn't that. It's much more intense. So basically, what happens is for a record. Uh, let's take Bobby's for example. So, um, we'll discuss the material and he'll come over to my apartment and we'll do what we call work sessions. And we start to work through each of the songs and starting to think about the concept of each of the songs, each of the pieces of material. And we're trying to make, you know, a play in three minutes or a play in four minutes or a play in five minutes. So it's got to have a first act, a second act and a third act. Uh, and so we're trying to figure out what the points are. Where are we trying to emphasize? What kind of textures uh, are we looking at in terms of the the musical instruments themselves that we want to help color the story? What kind of style of music? Is it Latin? Is it Broadway? Is it funk? Is it rap? What is it? What are we trying to do? 
And then after we do all those work sessions, I've got copious lists and various voice memos to reference. And I start piecing together the basic skeletons, like the bones, meaning like the rhythm section. So the drums, bass, and piano. What are those guys doing? And then once we settle on the fact of, you know, that all the elements of the bones are set, then I could start adding the flesh and blood. And that's the colors. That's the guitars and the violins and the horns and the percussion and the overdubs and, and extra things. And, and what are those things? Are we doing backups? Are we doing multiple takes on vocals and merging them together? And as we start to talk about things, I'll start to make uh, demos in Logic with my synthesizers that are in my computer so that Bobby can hear where I'm going or the artist can hear where I'm going. And then I send those to him for approval and he comes back with notes or not. And we go from there and then I put it on the page and then it's time to hire the uh, musicians and we go find a space where we can all rehearse together so we could feel like we're going to be playing it live. And so we understand so that the players understand what everybody in the band is doing because I have to record them separately. I have to record the strings on one day. I have to record the horns on one day. I have to record the rhythm section on a whole bunch of days. And that's because the room is small. Uh, it doesn't have as much isolated space as the old uh, big studios did in New York. So you have to kind of work differently when you're recording bigger projects for uh, a little less budget. And um, so we, I just wanted the players to really get a sense of what story we were trying to tell musically. And so I find that spot really important to be able to rehearse the musicians before you go in the studio so they know what they're getting into. Then when we're in the studio, things will come up that we'll hear under the microphones that we didn't hear in rehearsal. And people will have ideas and we'll discuss them. And I'm always the person that's like, best idea wins. Like, I think I have good ideas, but then somebody, like I'll single out our guitar player, Dylan, he had some amazing ideas for things that I hadn't thought of. And he wanted to bring them up to me. And I said either yes or no. And we that was the collaboration I was looking for. And everybody in the band kind of said that, you know, whether it was the string section or the horn players or the... Uh, the rhythm section players, everybody had ideas that they wanted to contribute because they felt that it was something that they felt comfortable doing it. I, I try to run a room where it's like the best idea wins. And that's the only way you make great art because everybody's got a point of view. And my point of view may be right for me, but somebody may hear something different to make it even better than I thought it could be. And I'm very, very much a collaborative artist that way. So I want to be able to uh, make music like that. And so that's how we did it. Oh, that's that's quite a journey. You go out yeah. and what about when you're doing a concert. Uh, the concert is basically the same, except the time crunch is different. The time crunch is usually, uh, you know, it probably takes me longer to 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 do the record for sure than it does to take uh, the concert journey. The concert journey could be a couple consultations, and you're writing out charts quickly, and then the concert's like three weeks away. So, and then it's done. Um, and then you put it aside till the next one. So it's a little bit different in terms of putting that together because you're rehearsing uh, with the band in the final like day before the gig, maybe sometimes even the afternoon, like with Jason's concert, it was like the afternoon before the gig. Um, and so it's a very different process and you're working at a different speed with different uh, details. You're not so much worried about the fine tuning of the details in the beginning uh, because you're just trying to get it on stage. Once you do it once and people are interested in doing it again somewhere else, then you can talk to your artist 
and work on, you know, this needs another vamp, this needs another repeat, this needs another couple eight bar sections put in or whatever. But that first concert is always the hardest because everybody's flying out kind of, you know, uh, with their tail in the wind, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's, a, it, it's a little tricky to, to, um, to just do it so fast, but it's just as rewarding because the live energy, of course, and with a great artist, um, you know, be it Billy or Titus or Shoshana or whoever, it's like, it really turns the room into a laboratory and that's much different than the studio. The studio you is like a painting. You preserve it forever. Um, the concert is a living, breathing thing. And I live for those moments. Um, you know, Shoshana and I had a run at 54 below last fall for two weeks. And we did, uh, she loves to do this request section where, uh, you know, she does people, it started out that she was doing requests of like songs that she had written, but then we were doing this Broadway show. She's like, I want to do like the Broadway request. And I'm like, okay. And so she knew that I had the iPad with me. So I have like a ton of scores and, uh, and they're with me at all times on the thing. So she decided to do a request section for Broadway stuff. And the stuff people were asking for was hilarious. It was like everything from wicked, obviously. And then it was like some funny girl stuff and some Sondheim stuff. And obviously her association with Jason Robert Brown goes back. So a lot of JRB was in there. Um, and it was fun because it was like, we didn't know what we were going to do. And she would pick stuff out of the, out of the, uh, you know, the fans kind of submitted names in a basket on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and she would just like, look at it and roll her eyes and she would come over to me. And I was like, Oh my God. Like, I was like, okay. And it would be things like, uh, you know, just stuff that we hadn't done for a long time or she hadn't done for a long time, or I didn't know what key it was in and it put us on the spot, but it also was a very genuine moment, you know, in that you're watching artists create right in front of you. And I think that that's the point is that we want to always be vulnerable so that we are, uh, at once entertaining, but also informing the audience that like, this is kind of in our blood. Like this is what we do is we get up and we just do things and it comes out like that. Do you know what I mean? It's not, it's not that we are, um, you know, we're toiling over hot stoves every day, 15 hours a day to do this. It's just, there are certain things that we are naturally doing, uh, that we are so grateful and want to give as gifts to the audience. And that is like, we like doing that stuff on the spot because it's that spontaneity <laughs> makes for a great, great moment for us as well as the audience. I, I still think of when she's saying, uh, it all fades away. Yeah. From bridges of, uh, bridges of Madison. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> oh God. Was there a song that she sang that you thought, this is, cr I can't believe it's in the vault though. It's <laughs> that she sang it. You were like, no, no, because everything she touches is something that she's got a, she's got a point of view that nobody else has. And um, it, it makes for an experience that very few people can do. Um, and, and it really, it, it touches my heart that, that she and I have been collaborators for about a decade, a little more. Um, you know, I don't see her as much cause she's in LA, but we talk all the time and I was working on this, uh, Beaverton high school benefit with her remotely that, uh, sadly had to be postponed because of recent events, but we'll be back and it will be shown. And there are a ton of great people and friends of hers on it that have worked on it with her because we believe in her social, uh, 
uh, uh, causes. You know, we believe in her activism for social causes and social justice, and and we're honored to stand with her for those things. So um, this benefit was for the kids at her alma mater, where she's very much about uh, making sure that there are arts programs in high schools. And I couldn't, I mean, I'm a product of that. I need that for the next generation. Art is that important to me and to those around me. And it all starts from the learning point. So that's what the benefit is and will be. And we'll get back to it and, and people will hear about it eventually. But for now we're on a pause till things settle down. So, but that's the kind of person she is. And I'm more than, uh, pleased to be a part of her extended fam of artists and creators. She's such a brilliant storyteller. And I love this collaboration as well with Hal Prince. Mm. I, I loved seeing you conduct at Prince of Broadway. Oh, um, it was really special. Can yeah. you talk about how, how, what went through your mind when you heard about that project? Prince Broadway. Well, I mean, I, I had for years, uh, of course, been not just a fan, but my parents were investors. They were angels. Back when you know, Broadway had angels, uh, yeah. my parents were part of that uh, crew of people, thousands of people that were called Broadway angels. And they were um, non-credited investors. Uh, that's how Broadway worked up until the 80s. And um you know, they'd put in a thousand bucks or 500 bucks towards a show and they would pull together with 10 other people. And then you have 5,000 or $10,000. And that's how you put on shows back in the day. Um, and my parents invested in every house Stephen Sondheim project since, uh, follies, but more importantly, they, uh, were part of a team that gave Hal his first, uh, directing job on Broadway. He had been a producer, for pajama game for, you know, for, um, she loves me, but she, had, but he had never directed on Broadway. And my parents were part of the producing team that gave Hal his first Broadway gig as a director. And that was a very little known John Kander, not Fred Ebb before Fred Ebb, John Kander and, uh, William Goldman show called uh, family affair. And how was the, the director of note? And it was, um, it was an amazing moment, and, and my parents saw in him some of the, something really special, both as a producer and as a director, and they followed him to Cabaret and to uh, all the Hal and Steve stuff. There's a lot of them, Zorba. There's a lot of stuff that Hal directed or produced from that point on that they were very keen on investing in. So yeah. my family history with Hal goes back a long time. Um, I had never met him, uh, even when I worked with... Uh, with Steve, I hadn't met Hal. And, uh, I, that was the part of the puzzle that for me, because of the family connection, I really just wanted to be a part of, uh, 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 his world too, working with him. And then Jason, after honeymoon in Vegas closed, he mentioned to me that Prince of Broadway was moving forward. And would I be a part of the orchestra? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so Freddie Lassen was the music director and a genius in his own right. And he had been part of it for a long time. Uh, and so I got to work with Hal and with Susan Stroman uh, and with Tommy, uh, a book writer, oh, Tommy Thompson, and um, uh, and then a whole bunch of other great creative people. I mean, the cast was absolutely, both in Toronto, I mean, both in Tokyo and in New York, the cast were unbelievable. Uh, some friends, some new people, 
Um, I hadn't worked with uh, Brandon Uranowitz or Josh Grissetti in Japan. I hadn't worked with Marion Torres yet. Uh, I hadn't worked with um, uh, Brianna Parham yet. So there were a bunch of people, but I had known Nancy from Honeymoon, and I'd uh, known Chuck Cooper from our work with Billy Porter. And uh, uh, I don't know, everybody was so, and Skinner I'd known, but we hadn't really done anything together. So that was great. It was just a great melding of the minds. Um, and through it, I got to be friends with Hal. And uh, so I got to work, you know, I'm one of those people that says they got to work with, with Hal and Steve. And that is a very small Venn diagram of people, but I'm so honored to be in that Venn diagram. And um, it was a friendship that I, you know, sadly had to say goodbye to. Um, but the friendship lives on through their family. I'm friends with Judy and Daisy, you know, Hal's widow and daughter and their families. And, and, um, but I miss him every day. I really, really miss him. It's a really special yeah. uh, person in my life and person in all of our lives that are in the theater. Cause he, there will never, and I, I know it seems hyperbolic, but there really will never be another Hal Prince in an, in anyone's lifetime. It's truly, it was a, he was a maverick of massive proportions. And, uh, I was just grateful to be there for this, the, the final act, you know? I know. I think of his Catalan, you know, all the shows and on and on everything yeah. to us. Is there something you miss about him most or what, what, when you think about him, you know, is there a story you could share if you're comfortable sharing or something you really miss about him? Something specific. I just miss the energy. I miss, the, first of all, we, we used to call it, you know, we do a scene in Prince of Broadway and then we'd call it story time with grandpa because it was like you were basically sitting around a fire with grandpa in the, in the, um, in the easy chair and he's telling you stories of yesteryear and everybody is looking at him enraptured. Do you know what I mean? You could see it. And if you close your eyes, you could see what that must have looked like. And so we would do like, you know, Chuck was doing, if I were a rich man in rehearsal, and the next thing I know, we're all sitting around talking, listening to Hal talk about like stories about getting zero to do the choreography that Jerry was trying to get him to do. And, or, you know, or just stories about how it even happened that somebody that wasn't that religious made a show about Jews, you know, it was like that kind of thing. Um, those kinds of stories and the energy that he would bring to those stories and the passion about storytelling and, 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 uh, what that took for him to do it or what minimalistic things he used to tell stories. Because like he always says, Phantom is just a black box show and it truly is. There's nothing really going on. There's not a huge amount of scenery. There's like little bits of scenery and a giant chandelier. But when you're on that stage, it's a black box. There's nothing there. And so it really is illusions. You know, Sweeney was a lot of the same, very small, very minimal, um, Evita was very much that. It was all in your mind. You imagine that she was on the balcony. There was no balcony there. She was on a level, but there was there were there weren't eight hundred thousand people. There were like thirty five people and a couple of signs, but there was nothing there. It was a black box show, and so he's always been about using the medium so that the medium remains the medium. That you're not trying to make it overly cinematic or overly produced. It's just what elements of the storytelling are there that need to be focused on. And I will never forget my time with him because it solidified a lot of the things that I had been either taught or shown or whatever. But there, there I was learning from the master 
And I, you know, those are the kinds of things that I always miss and remember. But plus just like his humanity, his his giving and, and being, you know, around him socially has, was just a, a beautiful thing. I love that he gave back in so always. many ways. You know, I, ta- I remember talking to Lonnie Price and um, so many people about how he mentored them and what impact he had right. in their lives. And I, lo- I love that he was a minimalist in the sense, but the material, like you say, is so rich and so so multi-layered and the songs yeah that they that they're you let them breathe and they with the right artists and that's beautiful storytelling yeah and that's all you need yeah is it hard to put into words how playing music makes you feel how or listening to music or when you realize you you've gotten the, the song to the right place, the composition mm. to where you want to go. How does that make you feel? Um, euphoric. Yeah. Uh, I think there is a sense of euphoria that comes from uh, different aspects of my job. <coughs> I think there's like a real sense of relief sometimes with my job that, you know, you made it to the finish. I think that there is a sense of euphoria when you hit an audience like the bombshell concert that just aired recently for the actors fund. Um, I remember that night so vividly because I, in my career had never ever felt the energy of what it must've felt like for the Beatles at Shea stadium until that night, we were received with such a thunderous applause that I couldn't hear I had to stuff the click deeper in my ear to find where the tempo was of the of the overture because the kids were just losing their minds. And it was that kind of euphoric rush. At the end of that night, I will never forget the end of that night. I was on a high for at least a week after that night because it was so – we couldn't believe, A, that we did it, so there was a relief factor, but there was so much love in that room. And that's what I try to kind of exude through the playing, through the – uh, uh, the emotion of what I'm trying to do is just to show how much joy I have in making music. And it really is. It's a joyful noise. It always will be. It always has been. Um, and even in a dark time that we're in right now, music continues to be a salve. Uh, it continues to be an ointment that heals. And I shut the world off and I sit on my balcony outside my apartment and just look at the Central Park and listen to you know, songs about New York or music that reflects New York, be it, you know, uh, Miles Davis or uh, local bands or things that I used to listen to as a kid when I was in the city or just like something atmospheric to give me some kind of peace. Um, so, you know, I, I am constantly listening to music. I never find it to be laborious or my job. It's just like every time I hit a project, it's like I get giddy. And if I'm just sitting around watching Netflix I get very anxious. And if I'm not sitting playing music or making it for people with people, it just makes me crazy. Now that to be fair, I'm not a composer, so I don't, you know, have to sit here and create from a blank white page. I'm an arranger and an orchestrator um, and a producer. So I like to collaborate. I like the, the, the other people in the room. If I, if I were to compose, which I guess I might with Billy, you know, I would, you know, he would write lyrics uh, and I'll write the music to those lyrics. But just being a composer of music by itself, 
or music and lyrics. That's not me. But um, uh, yeah, so that's what I would say. I would say I would say ethereal, uh, ethereal. That's a good one. Or euphoric. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Always a treat. Oh, thanks, Cheryl. Thank you. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, you too. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Take good care. Okay, bye-bye. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore. And the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.